0: What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate here. Thankful, um, you know, thankful that we're coming up on the holiday season. I can't be the only person. In fact, I know for a fact I'm not the only person who needs a break, Um, who is tired, who is exhausted. And frankly, you know, anxious about the rest of this year (laughs) and 2021. You know, I'm really excited. You know, every single week we come to y'all. With some content uh, that centers and amplifies black and brown people at work. And we're having conversations with all types of individuals, right? We're talking to activists and entrepreneurs and executives and influencers and writers and professors, civil servants, right? Like the list goes on and on and on. Um, And I'm I'm thankful for the person we're going to talk to today. Before I get to that, I want to talk a little bit about human resources, and it's relevant right to the guests that we have today, human resources is supposed to be right. An organization that helps to advocate for employees who need it. Unfortunately, oftentimes human resources becomes like the enforcement arm of the, the folks who have the power. Right. And so, you know, when you think about, the future of this work and scarily how things I felt were trending for a while under Trump's administration. It seemed as if more and more power was going to be indexed to those who are in charge, right? So the people who have the power are getting more power and those on the margins continuing to be further marginalized. And there's been an, overarching critique of the role that human resources should play in this era where sycophancy seems to be the ever-growing trend. And frankly, that's still a question, right? I mean, like, you hear it all the time. People talk about, look, HR is not your friend. HR is there for the company. You know, they're not there for you. They're there to protect the company, protect the company from lawsuits. They're not there to, you know, right wrongs. And I would say I still in large part believe that, but there has to be some examination and interrogation as to the future of human resources and what human resources as a party, right? As a player on the board, uh, what role they're going to play. And it raises a lot of really interesting questions, even like psychologically, because human resources, they're employees like everybody else. And we're still in the middle of the pandemic. There's still, Pressure, right, to keep your job and to justify your value. And if you're in a role that is supposed to be advocating for business ethics and doing the right thing and protecting employees, but you're also sticking your head up in a time where you really need your job, which of those things went out, right? I think we know the answer. This is a really interesting dichotomy and challenge, I think, for any human being. And at the same time, that's the job, right? So all of that to say, really excited about the guests that we have on this week, Jillian Hubbard. So Jillian Hubbard, for context, y'all, Jillian and I, we actually connected several months ago before the pandemic, right? Before there was this collective call to consciousness, before a black man was murdered on camera, which I, we've already forgotten about before. Uh, the election right before the results of said election. And even now, like, you know, before the things that have already happened just the past week, like we we connected like at the top of the year. And so then we re-recorded later in the year <laughs> after the birth of my daughter, after the murder of Breonna Taylor, after the murder of George Floyd. We connected well after that. And yet this episode interview is still a little dated because so much has continues to happen in this very, very long year. But what I'm thankful for is that this conversation is still relevant, right? Jillian Hubbard is a consultant specializing in DEI, diversity inclusion, uh, talent development, organizational development through her work. She supports leaders and organizations to create more inclusive environments, increase their effectiveness by empowering their human capital. And so she's been able to work across education, nonprofit, corporate and government sectors. We talk a lot about her background in human resources before she got into DEI consulting. We talk about how her work has continued to shift and change in light of the social climate and the pressures that she feels as a black woman in white majority spaces, talking to white people about their own whiteness. So, I'm really excited about this conversation and I'm excited for us to get into it. But before we do that, I want us to go ahead and tap in with Tristan. See y'all in a minute.
1: What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. This week, let's talk about how to stand out while working remotely some of us have been working remotely for a while and some of us are just settling into working from home due to covid 19. either way it can be challenging to figure out how to stand out and advance in your career when you're not actually in the office i have over seven years of experience working remotely for fortune 500 companies when i first started i had to learn how to adapt to ensure i could still get recognition and promotions to continue advancing my career Here are my top three recommendations to continue making forward progress in your career. First, show up and be present. While I know it can be easier only to use audio for meetings, I'd suggest turning your camera on. You want your boss, your team, and others you work with to get as much face-to-face interaction with you as possible to mimic how it would be in the office. This helps people attach a face to the name and allows you to develop better connections. Also, make sure to pay attention to how you are presenting on screen from staging your work area and getting dressed to being mindful of facial expressions and body language it all plays into your professional brand as a remote employee second take the time to reach out to your team boss and peers when working remotely building personal relationships is incredibly important the goal is to develop fans advocates and sponsors people who will sing your praises and rooms and meetings you're not in they can help raise your profile and even help you get to the next level in your career lastly you have to become your own biggest advocate by mastering the art of self-promotion most of us have been taught not to talk about ourselves but promoting yourself at work is essential to career growth and recognition Make sure you're documenting and sharing wins to boost visibility and your professional brand. You can also utilize that information during your performance reviews to make a case for raises and promotions. Thanks for tapping in with me this week. I look forward to speaking with you next week. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn.
0: Jillian, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I
2: am. <laughs> it's funny. I was like, I'm doing well. Uh, and I <laughs> feel like that's also very relative to everything right. that's going on. In this exact moment, I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here with you and super grateful to be recording this with you.
0: No, I'm super I'm super thankful and grateful for you as well. So look, I gave a quick introduction, but for those of us who don't know you, like, what else can you share about yourself?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I have been doing work around diversity, equity, and inclusion for about 10 years or so in a number of different capacities. In some cases, that is within organizations, external to organizations. I've been an advisor to others doing this work. I've also been a builder of programs and initiatives around this work. I primarily work with uh, education organizations and nonprofit organizations, though I will say in the last few months as things have been picking up, I've also been working with startups, tech companies, all kinds of organizations. And yeah, the work that I've Done around talent development and organization development informs a, a lot of what I do. So, quick additional info about me, but happy to share more.
0: I know that you started off in HR, but then like you transition into independent consulting. And I'm curious about that. It seems like I'm seeing a pattern of high performing black women who also have just a low tolerance for, not even, I don't say a low tolerance for nonsense, I mean, who are just, they get exhausted. Right by the trappings of the corporate space, and just end up like building their own things. And I'm curious uh-huh. about like just what that journey looked like for you.
2: Yeah, it's funny because when you said a low tolerance for nonsense, I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, you know, for me, the shift was really around knowing that this was a passion of mine to do work in diversity, equity, inclusion. I mean, the spark of it for me, and really being able to concretize for me, was actually in grade school. I was in high school and I had a class that really started to solidify for me, wow, all the things that I'm experiencing as a black woman, a light-skinned black woman in a suburban high school that's primarily white, but being, you know, bust out from the inner city in Boston through the METCO program, for those of you who are familiar with it, but through that program to the suburban white school and having all of the different dynamics that show up with that, you know, this has been interest of mine for quite some time. And so being in a space where I knew that this was work that I really wanted to do, in organizations and not necessarily being able to do that despite the number of projects that I worked on, the number of things that I did off the side of my desk that were not part of my job description, the number of different ways that I helped people advance their thinking around it. And, you know, years later, being able to look and see that some of the work that I did was foundational to how organizations, some of the organizations I worked with carried that forward. Essentially, it was just and were a number of different reasons why I left, but part of it is just recognizing that the system wasn't built for People like me and feeling like you don't fit into that system. And no matter how hard you try to configure yourself to fit into it, it's, it's not built for you. So I was actually just having a conversation with someone else yesterday about this, that the largest growing demographic of entrepreneurs is women of color, particularly black women. So it's, it's fascinating. I mean, I don't think that it's a mistake that those are the people who are leaving corporations to do their own thing and create their own work, but it's, it's kind of shocking to see those kinds of
0: numbers. You know, when you say, when you say, cause you know, that's a common phrase I mean, that black folks use is like, built for us. Like when you say it's not built for us, like what do you, what do you mean by that?
2: Yeah. Wow. There's, there's so many different ways. <laughs> I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is just in how you show up. You know, I think back to one of the last teams that I worked on and I, I think for myself, you know, I know this doesn't speak for everybody, but for me, it, People of color in particular, I think, are more kind of communal and collaborative. Like, if we have problems, oh, let me go ask my friend, let me go ask my girl, like whoever, about, you know, what their input is, how we can collaborate and together as a group. And one of the last teams I was in, we were tasked with innovating on some of the products we were responsible for delivering to our clients. And I had some ideas around different ways we could innovate. But knowing that there was much genius on my team, I asked, my manager, another teammate about their input. And the feedback that I ended up getting from them was that I wasn't being proactive, which essentially they were asking me to come up with the idea, pitch it, say why it was the best idea, and then they would say it's a go or it's not a go. And that was much more, frankly, of a white dominant way of looking at ways to be innovative and to think about how we support and enhance our products that we do. But the way that I was showing up and what was valued for me and what was valued in the cultures that I grew up in was something that was more collaborative, and you have more people giving input, so I mean that's just an example of that, but there's so many other structural ways that that's baked to it, into it as well
0: It reminds me of like a discussion that we had with uh, Dr. Tim of Oakland you know a couple of months ago about white supremacy culture and like the subtle but like at the same time very wealth like strongly felt ways um, mm-hmm. that white supremacy shows up right and so you know like just this idea of perfectionism, um, this weird sense of urgency. Hyper individualism, right? Almost in a way that, like, le- that almost looks at community as a weakness, right? In yeah, terms yeah. of, you know, if I ask you for something or if I ask for input, that must be a sign of incompetence on my part. Where it's like, yeah, I just like to talk about it, right? Like right. Also, just kind of operating from like the scarcity mindset of taking, which is cool. um, so. So, no, I, I get that. I get that. I, I'm curious, you know. We talk about, you know, your transition and the work that you've been doing. In diversity and inclusion, I'd like to talk about w- what does that shift look like since the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and this like revitalized or renewed interest in Black equity. You know, I feel like this question even would look different if I asked you this in June. And I'm, I'm curious about you know what you've seen since George Floyd, and then if that has changed at all. I'd love to get your perspective on that.
2: Yeah. So one of the questions that I get a lot, I think it's corollary to what you're asking, you know, Jillian, I know that you've been in this space for a while and you know, you talk to a lot of people who are thinking about this work. Do you think that this is the moment where we're actually going to make significant change and this is going to be the turning point for <laughs> racial equity in our country? And I tend to be more on the pessimistic side of that. But at the same time, I also think of it as more of a speck. Like I'm kind of holding my hands up, you know, a little six inches of space between it if people are on a spectrum of you know somewhere between my hands basically everybody can kind of i think after what's happened in the last few months i think everyone has kind of moved forward on that spectrum a little bit so the people who might be on you know the left hand end of the spectrum and they're not as into this work they're not as aware of it and they're not as aware of themselves in this work You know, I think they've shifted and moved forward. I think some of the people who are probably further along in this work have become more aware of how they can create change and just more committed to this work. So, you know, I I say that as a beginning answer to your question, because I think that, you know, I've gotten, oh my gosh, an inordinate amount of requests for work, which I'm grateful and blessed for, because I know many people do not have work during this time. But it's been an extreme surge in the number of people asking for work. Now, there are some people who are asking for support around diversity, and equity, inclusion in a way that is really holistic. And they're taking into account, you know, how do we show up? Um, how does somatics play into it? How does my bodily response in the way that my own person shows up in this space play into it? And how does that impact internally the staff and our leaders? And how does it impact our customers and our stakeholders, our funders? So there's some people thinking about it in that way, but I've also gotten a lot of requests about, well, can you do this training for us? And, you know, that'll kind of be the thing that we do to address diversity, equity, inclusion in our organization. And so, you know, I definitely think that people are more aware of this work and wherever you were on that spectrum before everything that happened in June took place, I think people have moved forward a bit. But at the same time, I think there's work to do on all aspects of that. What I'm seeing in my work is that there are just more people who are trying to engage in it from a new level of understanding or a new, possibly a new level of curiosity around this.
0: You talked a little bit about your skin tone. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm curious about, you know, how would you say that your experience as you show up in these spaces as a light skinned black woman uh, differ than if you were a darker skinned black woman?
2: Yeah. I mean, first colorism is real. You know, I just speaking with a number of colleagues who are in this space who are black women who have darker skin than I do. I find that I have a different experience. So, you know, part of it, and I've been kind of reflecting on this with a number of different people in my space is that the assumption I'm making from the feedback that I get is that I come off as a little bit more tolerable. People will talk to me and share things with me about what's going on in their organization or leaders will will share things about how they're really feeling about you know how they're showing up and how their team is performing that I've shared with some of my other colleagues who have darker skin than me and they're like I've never heard a leader say something like that before and so you know it's interesting because in some ways I think that people will look to me as the person that they feel very comfortable with talking about this work and it's It's also a bit of a shame because you know, when it comes to this work, everybody's got their own qualifications around who can really talk about this and what experiences they have to lend. But in the spectrum of privilege, like I acknowledge the privilege that I have around having light skin and doing this work and showing up in corporate spaces or whatever number of spaces that I work in. But the people who are the most marginalized, the people who, you know, are on the edge of how society is designed and not the ones who are considered are also the ones who can offer an extreme amount of value when it comes to thinking about this work. And so when people either have discomfort around working with people who are different from them, look different from them, have different experiences than them, and they're not really taking the time to examine those, but, you know, feel very comfortable with me as the light skinned woman who's showing up Mm -hmm. and doing this work. You know, there's so much that can be missed out on and so many opportunities that can be lost.
0: And so, you know, because of the color of your skin and the presumed approximation approximation uh, that you have to whiteness, do you ever have moments where you end up kind of like surprising the white people that open up to you or say certain things where they're like, "Oh, actually, I can't just say, or you're not just some acceptable Negro? Like, do those moments ever happen?
2: Yeah, they definitely do. You know, <laughs> if anything, one of the coaches that I work with, we've kind of been talking about that is one of the benefits that i bring to this work where it's like you kind of bring me in and i seem like this i have a very young looking face so i also look very young super approachable for the most part and so people (laughs) will kind of you know bring me and think oh this sweet little person is just going to talk about bias and we're all going to feel really comfortable and great once she's left (laughs) and then then i'm like let's talk about the thing like i know you don't want to name racism you don't name anti-blackness you don't want to name all of these things let's let's just talk about it and you know people will walk away feeling a number of different things i think some of it is the discomfort around it some of it is a little bit of shock and for the people who i think were probably further along on that spectrum that i was describing some people are actually more appreciative they're like oh wow you know yes she came in and, and one of the things that i really try to do when i work with people is to meet people where they're at i, I don't think that approaching this work from a place of, you know, condemnation or shame is helpful in any way. So, you know, I do try and meet people in a place where it's, where they're in their learning zone and not kind of the, you know, fear zone or danger zone, but, but, you know, I think the people who are willing to dive into this work will say, oh, I'm actually a We started to talk about the things that in our organization and our normal ways of going about things, we can't actually talk about on our own or we, or we just don't, you know, I think people are capable of many things, but Yeah, people aren't always talking about this, so a little surprise factor behind the the young, light-skinned face.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting because, like, there are times – well, we're not even talking about, like, this newer context of, like, talking and working through webcam, and sometimes webcam is often people presume certain things about you by the way that you speak, and then things that they'll slip up and say or or presume that you agree with. Is interesting as well. So anyway, you know, you have a background in human capital, human resources. I do want to talk more about your transition from HR to diversity, inclusion, and then I'd like to really get your perspective on like the relationship you believe that those two spaces should have one another.
2: Yeah, I will again name my privilege in that space. So one of the first jobs that I had, um, I worked at an organization. It's an organization in New York. They're phenomenal. They do work around mentoring. And I met a consultant there who she and I, on my way out when I was like, this isn't the place for me. This isn't the work that I want to be doing. It's not how I want to grow. You know, she and I kind of Started talking and she ran her own consulting organization. She's a brown woman as well. And so she, you know, she offered me some opportunities to do some work around a project that she was working on that was actually around freelancers, which is something that I was looking to do. And so it was my first time stepping into the freelance space. She gave me some opportunities to do some work on the side for her. And I got to do some research around, you know, what does that space really look like? What are the demographics of the people who are doing it? What are the topics that people who are just stepping into this space really care about? So, you know, I, I was really privileged to be able to start practicing my own kind of contract work and what it looked like for me to be independent in this work while also simultaneously working on a project that also provided me with education around this and some mentorship support. So after the contract to hire role, I actually did go back to work for a while. I, you know, jumping into a contract role after full-time work when you're not entirely con- convinced that you want to do freelancing full-time is a big leap. And so I kind of went back for some stability, but continued to do freelance work on the side. I eventually got to the point in that that second organization I was working with where I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do the work that I cared the most about around diversity, equity, and inclusion without doing it on my own. At that point, I think I had talked to enough people, made enough connections that I felt comfortable breaking out. Um, And then at the same time that I decided to quit my full-time job, make freelancing a full-time gig instead of a part-time thing I did on the side, or moonlighting, I also started grad school in a program that was also very much geared towards organization development and also geared toward external consultants and practitioners. So, you know, I talk to people all the time, are kind of questioning their own careers and thinking about their next steps and might have some interest in freelancing or doing their own work. And I try really hard to hold back because I don't want to prescribe for anybody what the best work situation is for them. But you know, I do believe that there are ways that no matter what situation you're in, you can find a way to make a work life that works for you. And I also acknowledge the number of privileges I had in my own journey getting into a space where I started working for myself. So, yeah.
0: So considering that you're back now, I'd love to get your perspective on the relationship you believe diversity, equity, inclusion efforts should have with corporate human resources.
2: A lot of times I will see diversity, equity, inclusion kind of seated underneath HR. And I'm a big proponent of having diversity, equity, inclusion, whatever you want to call it. DEI DNI that department outside of HR and being something that actually reports directly to the CEO. Because essentially, yes, in order to have, you know, someone giving some oversight, you want to have some role or department or some working someone who's responsible for doing that work. But the closer that it can get to the people or person who is running the organization, the more likely you are to be able to have this work actually integrated. So that's kind of my first thing. And if you are in a situation where you are able to have those two separated out, the partnership between your DEI department and your department is one that I feel needs to be really strong. You know, I think, you know, with HR, it serves a number of purposes. And on some level, people break it out as like, you know, there's the talent things that you do and the work you do to help people. And so being able to team up both of those with the work that people are doing in the DEI department is essential. I mean, everything from how we think about how we compensate people to, you know, what are the trainings and resources that we offer? I mean, ultimately, I think that the way that HR needs to look at this kind of work, hopefully, can be from a more radical space. I think it's really easy for HR to kind of fall into a place Recruit, retain, hire people without really thinking about, wait a minute, how is our organization structured? You know, who are the leaders who are pushing this work forward? Are they, are they themselves embodying the changes that we want to see in order to create a space where people can really show up as themselves? How can we as an HR department really support that? And I think the more that HR can start to look at itself more holistically, which in part is about looking at your systems and things that you do, but also HR professionals looking at themselves and seeing the ways that they may perpetuate dynamics of white supremacy or or oppression really helps to start to examine the ways that you can be more radical and more progressive in thinking about how you actually create these spaces where people can, can be their full
0: selves. When we initially talked several months ago, we talked about data and we talked about that still being a genuine weak spot, weak area within a DEI, amongst many other things. But I'm curious, like in this time, have you seen an increased demand or expectation around data sharing, critical thought around data? I think about like just the various changes that we're seeing in these organizations, like people getting fired, people resigning, you know, black employees writing, you know, open letters, things of that nature. And like where at all, if, if at all does a demand or expectation around data play?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, in terms of the demand piece, one thing that I have been really grateful to see is that a lot of the requests that I've been seeing come in are rather than starting with a training, which you know everybody kind of starts where they need to start, but rather than starting with a training, they're saying, okay, before we start to diagnose this situation, <laughs> let's actually get some more information about what it is in our organization that, we want to start addressing? Where are the pain points? You know, where are people who are more marginalized, not feeling included? Where is the system not benefiting them in the way that it's benefiting people in the majority, white people, men, and so forth. Um, So that's been really heartening just to see. And, And there's some organizations that I've spoken to as well, where they started off thinking that they wanted a training and the more people that they talked to and conversations that they had around you know, who to engage around that work as a consultant, the more that they started to see, oh, we actually need to figure out what's going on in our organization before we start diagnosing the problem and solving it with trainings and so forth. So first, that's been really heartening.
0: So because it's interesting, you know, we talk about training, you know, so again, I, I mentioned him from time to time, Chris Moreland, and, you know, he came on some time ago, we talked about basically how pointless training is in this <laughs> space and then dr pamela newkirk said the same thing in her book diversity inc and then she came on the show and said you know said something similar and i'm curious like your position on training as a solution and then also like if you agree that training is a solution then like what should that training look like and what should it be trying to achieve
2: as a solution <laughs> I disagree i do not think the training in any way i'm sorry for laughing i don't i don't think the training in any way is a solution for very equity inclusion and i'm laughing because i think that you know when we really holistically think about this issue i mean i've heard everything from a four to five hundred year problem but at any event it's a multi-hundred year problem depending on where you put your starting point point. and having a training about something like this it is beneficial in the sense that it can give the people in your organization a starting point. You've never had those conversations with your staff. This can be a great place to start building that language into your vocabulary and how you think about your own work. I mean, that's where I really think of trainings as I think of them as education. I think it's foundational education that you can then decide to do something with or not. I mean, how many of us have gotten our undergraduate degrees, and it relates in no way to what we're actually doing in our jobs. So, you know, as long as you're finding ways to apply it, which I think is kind of the second piece of, you know, what are the other ways that we can start to use that training to then start to mobilize around the work that we want to do? How do we apply this concept of anti-bias to our recruiting systems and our promotion systems, retention systems? How do we look at it when people are exiting our organization? And how do we think about how we can, you know, better structure our everything from performance management to manager training, to everything really, so that we actually keep these people. So it's a great starting point for some folks, if that's where you're at. And in terms of structuring the training, I'll start by talking about how I structure some of mine. I'm actually a very light facilitator. I... Don't do a whole lot of talking. I wouldn't consider myself a trainer. I would definitely be more of a facilitator or workshop leader. So when people have an opportunity to really play around with it and dig into it and apply it to their own organization, and and then at the end of all, like, I always have some kind of opportunity for people to think about next steps. I may have some recommendations for general thinking around this. Otherwise, the you know two hours you spent with me can just be a really nice two hours that you spent. And so I'm trying to make this something where people actually take it forward and do something with it.
0: I think about the fact that like a lot of these organizations, they still treat training as the solution, even in this moment, right? Like I've had people reach out and ask, Hey, can you come in, can you do a talk? Mm-hmm. You know, can you come in and kind of like help us understand the value of DNI and give us awareness on d and i'm like or or can we do unconscious bias training like why do y'all think that that's the solution in this moment still like george floyd wasn't unconsciously murdered like what are you talking i don't understand i don't i don't understand or rather i do understand but like my analysis is going to be so sharp because my take my take is that you do know but you're still seeking to hedge your bets and not engage the reality of white supremacy and you're still looking to like really reaffirm and protect your own interests which is consciousness. Like, like it it makes me question if you have a conscience, I'm taken aback by that. Like even now, right? Like people can, and I'm, I think I'm I'm not going to speak for you for myself. It's like, I'm getting to the point where I'm numb. I'm getting, I'm continuing, I'm growing increasingly numb to the murder and like the brutality and just the dehumanization of black and brown bodies that we see on social media every day. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And I don't, but I don't know how much of any internalized or even like processed, by, like, the average white executive, you know?
2: That, it's it's so easy to remove yourself from that. I mean, it's so easy when, oh God, I was going to say it's so easy when it's not in your face, but I think people are also very good at not seeing something when it is in your face. So, you know, I think it's really easy when you see this happening over and over. And I, I definitely have, I have a feeling about putting these murders like this out for public to see on one level because i think there's a population of people who really don't believe this is a thing that's happening but on another level if you keep seeing this over and over it almost becomes a norm it's like oh yeah there's another one that's that stinks and and that's not we're talking about people (laughs) i think in this work sometimes we miss our own humanity around this, like we, especially in organizations, it's like, we are so focused on our goals for this year, our bottom line, you know, the meeting that we have in two hours that we miss the bigger picture of like, we're all people showing up and our shared humanity needs to be valued in our organizations just as much as it's valued when we go back home and we hang out with our families and spend time together. And so, you know, I, I just think that when it comes to this type of brutality, I encourage people to be more comfortable sitting in their own discomfort around what it feels like to really think about what this means and the impact that it has on people. And it might be painful. It should be. And right. that's okay.
0: I mean, again, like there's a lot of stuff still happening. Protests, a mm. um, White House that continues to you know, undermine the spirit and rule of the law. Like, if you were to give, like, five tips for executives in terms of what they should be doing in this moment, what they should be thinking about, and how they can really be practiced, like, what would they be?
2: So, particularly for leaders and for people who are wanting to embark on this work and someone who's in a leadership position to do it, the first one that I really stand by is for leaders who are doing this work to really connect to why you personally want to do this work there are so many feel good reasons you know whether it's the right thing to do or there's also well you know our staff has been asking for it and so we really want to make sure that they're feeling heard there's a lot of feel good reasons but the first one is just why do you want to engage in this work i mean as someone who is a leader in this work even if you have a chief diversity officer or a diversity and inclusion working group you're really the person who sets the vision and the direction for an organization. So your own personal commitment to this work is going to come through no matter what. And that be what this hinges on because when you're actually committed to doing this work, that's when you're willing to dedicate the time, the resources, the energy to actually invest in what needs to take place. So that is my first one. My second one is... To really include the voices of those who are most marginalized in your organization. And when I say in, I mean in and outside of. Who is my organization not serving? It is still in community with us? You know, who do we hear from the least? You know, who are the voices that we listen to the most and that have the most weight? And who are the ones that have the least weight in the decisions that we make about how our organization runs? You know, when we design for the people who are at the margins of our organization and of our society, we actually design an organization that is great for everyone. I'm kind of pulling that from my colleague, Caroline Hill at 228 Accelerator. She does some amazing work, so I'm plugging her. Shout Uh, out. Yes, and also the Equity Lab and Michelle Molitor, plugging all of that. Um, My third one I would say is to slow down. For people who are forging, I would say that there was a sense of urgency around it for the people who were starting it in advance of this. It's just significantly increased. And while there is urgency around this work, don't get me wrong, we are talking about life and death when it comes to this work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, don't mis- you know, mistake what I'm trying to say here. But at the same time, doing this in a way that you, th- if you think that this is going to be a six-month project and then you're going to be able to wipe your hands, say that it's done, you know, I'm sorry to inform you that that's probably not going to happen. So, you know, I think really taking the time to acknowledge that this work takes time that you want to be thoughtful and intentional about it while also acknowledging the urgency around doing this work is important. And I guess this kind of plays into number four, how you go about your work and how you go about DEI work, it informs the work that you actually do. And, you know, I I think for some folks, that concept is a little hard to translate because it can seem that as if, you know, if you're really focusing on how you do the thing, it feels like you're not actually getting a lot done. And frankly, the more that you focus on the how, the more that you get clarity on the what, and you do the what in a way that actually benefits others.
0: This has been a super dope conversation. And I know you already gave some shout outs, but before we let you go, is there anybody else, anything else you want to shout out?
2: I will shout out the person who I referenced at the beginning was kind of the mentor that I worked with in the beginning of my transition from internal organization work to external. And her name is Nita Baum. She is the founder of Be Free. She's doing incredible work both around essentially the phrase she uses is how to create a workplace as healing space. And she's been doing some incredible work around diversity, equity, inclusion as well. And yeah, so 228 Accelerator, <laughs> Equity Lab, Be Free. So I, I plug. All of those folks as being some really incredible people to work with.
0: Well, first of all, we're going to make sure we put all that in the show notes so folks can catch up with Be Free, with the Equity Lab, and with you. Thanks so much, y'all. This is you know this is look we're having these conversations every single week, centering and amplifying Black and Brown voices, hopefully to the aspirational allies or just curious white folks out there who maybe stumbled across this on your your morning walk. Uh, <laughs> you know, you you listen to this man. Take some of this to heart. Take the information and do something with it. Okay.
2: Oh, Zach, that should be number five. What's to that? take this and do something with it. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like we can get so caught up in learning and listening and having conversations. Number five, please take action. Do something. Do not get caught up in being afraid that you're going to say the wrong thing. Do the wrong thing. I say and do the wrong thing all the time. We all do. And that's the way that we learn something. I'm going to make that number five.
0: I love it that you gave that to me on the outro. So y'all heard that. (laughs) Y'all heard that. Okay. Look, we all over Beyonce's internet, all over Serena Williams' internet, all over Michelle Obama's internet. Just type in Living Corporate. Okay. Shout out to Jillian, educator, leader, speaker, consultant, overall dope person. Peace. So look, y'all, you know, before I let y'all go, I do want to talk a little bit about this fall and what Living Corporate has going on and what you you can expect from us. So, the good news—I don't have bad news, right? I just have good news and I have better news/slash interesting news. Okay. So the good news is is that we're going to be continuing airing content throughout the holiday season, right? So like every Tuesday and Saturday, you can expect Real Talk Tuesdays and See It to Be with Amy C. You can expect that the better news is that we're going to do something a little different, right? So starting in December from December 1st to Christmas, we're going to air a podcast every single day. What every single day. Okay. This is a big deal because there's a few reasons for this. First of all, Um, we have a huge back catalog. And frankly, like we've talked to some incredible people, but like the world has just been so crazy this year. It doesn't fit, right? So instead of like just sitting on it forever, involving it out of respect to the individuals that we've interviewed, and frankly, out of excitement to still share the content with you, we want to go ahead and still get it out, but we're going to drop it in like a bonanza, right? And my hope is that, it helps continue to get the word out about living corporate and that folks really can learn something new because these are fairly, um, can we continue to push the envelope in terms of like the types of content that we're engaging in and we're talking about. And so it'll be things like racialized trauma in the workplace, burnout, rebranding in the middle of a pandemic, the future of DEI. Right. So like these are not off brand conversations at all, not whatsoever. If anything, uh, we're continuing to like really push and create content that aligns with our brand and our strategy as a media network. I also hope that it helps to propel us to 2021 where we're going to be creating and dropping even more content, more fire that, frankly, like I'm a little nervous about. I want to make myself nervous about the content that we drop. Right. We know it's not controversy for controversy's sake but really driving to hold systems and institutions accountable by speaking to the reality of white supremacy and patriarchy and capitalism and having the audacity to humanize marginalized people by centering their experiences and their perspectives in uh, a corporate context. And so, you know, that's the news I have. I want to make sure that, you know, if you haven't, Done so already, please tell a friend or three about Living Corporate. Another way you can really support us and help get the word out about Living Corporate is giving us five stars on iTunes. Okay. So if you haven't given us five stars already, I want you to go ahead and give us five stars, right? Just scroll on down on the iTunes, right? You're going to see the little stars, they're going to be empty. Just press five. That's all you got to do. Just press five and then put a review there also. Right. There's nothing, nothing to uh, nothing to it, but to do it. And, um, you know, I appreciate y'all until next time. This has been Zach and uh, we'll catch you soon. All right. Peace.